Welcome to the Founders for Good podcast, hosted by myself, Craig Turner. Join me as I speak to the most inspirational founders of Full Good Startups, the people that are leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues. I explore their journey as founders and their best kept secrets on how to grow a Full Good Startup and how to hire top people. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Harry Lars is the CEO and founder of Bubble. After becoming a parent, Harry was shocked by the lack of innovation in the childcare space and set out to change this. In this episode, Harry explains the challenges in building a marketplace for users that are trusting you with the most valuable thing in their lives, their children. And Bubble achieved this in two ways. One, using social proof as the key to building trust with parents. Ultimately, who are you going to trust more than someone that's been vouched for by a friend or family member? And secondly, by giving the power to the parents. Historically, childcare agencies would just send a nanny to a family. With Bubble, the parents decide which nanny they want to use. So keep listening to hear how Ari has grown the UK's largest on-demand in-home childcare platform with over 200,000 families and 100,000 carers on the app. Hey Ari, thanks for chatting with me today. Pleasure, thanks for having me. Of course. So always like to start off with some background on the guests. So I just wondered if you could give us like a real quick overview of your, of your background, but also like, I guess the more kind of key moments, key steps in what led you to working in the childcare space? Yeah, sure. So at uni, I actually did broadcast jets. I had a bit of an odd. People sometimes would look at my CV and think uh, it's a bit interesting, but also just a bit odd. I mean, at uni, I did broadcast journalism at Leeds. Um, I then did a year working as a sports broadcaster for UEFA, actually, uh, like football commentating. You know, as a big football fan, it was like a dream, I thought it was like a dream job. Um, and it was, it was really fun. But uh, a year in, I realized, you know, journalism just wasn't for me. You know, I was surrounded by people um, in studios who were doing the same job, who they spent their whole life doing it. And they just had the bug and they loved it so much. And I kind of figured that I love sport. And I loved football and it was quite fun for a while, but it's not really uh, the right career for me. So I joined uh, Betfair um, uh, on their graduate scheme, actually. Uh, ended up spending uh, five years there, um, quickly m- moved to the PR and the corporate comms department, which was around the time of the float, um, which was a really interesting time. Really ended up being a really stressful time because the float was quite c- catastrophic, um, but they've obviously recovered amazingly since then. Um, and after Betfair, I, yeah, I started to get like the startup bug. Um, it was 2013 and FinTech was emerging in London. So I ended up joining, they were called at the time market invoice, um, then Apple market finance, uh, it was SME invoice trading. So a bit like peer to peer lending, it was SMEs, uh, selling their, their invoices, big companies, not paying them still today for up to 120 days, which is a killer for businesses. And they'd have uh, institutional investors and high net worth individuals basically buying a hundred grand invoice for 98 grand. Uh, but the company, they gave up two grand, but they got paid today, which was fantastic. So went there, uh, joined when it was about eight people, stayed for three years, uh, left when it was over a hundred people and they'd done over a billion in funding uh, to businesses. So um, that was an awesome journey. And Bubble was really, I guess, a fusion of... Uh, marketplaces experience at both Betfair and Market Invoice. And then, yeah, the pain of having children myself uh, <laughs> and the pain point of trying, really trying to find childcare for them. So I have three young children now, but uh, I guess the, yeah, the genesis of Bubble started quite quickly after having my first, probably, you know, still in the labor ward uh, after my son had been born and just hit, hitting me how unbelievably difficult parenting was. And I find that quite um, surprising, but also just like odd in this day and age where literally everything had become easier, but having kids hadn't really, and was still incredibly difficult. And it was kind of that marketplace experience on a, on a business level and seeing the impact of customers and the amazing products you could build. And then, yeah, the very personal pain point of really struggling to find childcare. And that's, that was how bubble started really. Yeah, nice. Yeah. As a as a dad of two, like I, I definitely know that that pain, <laughs> especially if you don't have like family as well that can help you out, which we don't. Like childcare is actually like a really challenging thing to get right. Um, before we talk about bubble specifically, I did want to chat to you a bit more about just the childcare sector in general because some of the listeners may not have children or may not be aware of like how childcare works, what options are available. 
So I wondered if we could just start by actually explaining like the types of needs that people have when it comes to childcare. Because I imagine it's quite different from like ad hoc, you know, babysitting every once in a while to like regular. It'd be good to hear what the different things are that you see in terms of like needs from parents. Yeah, I, I guess so. Childcare as a subject uh, and as a pain point, I think before you have kids, like it's hard to give a crap about it really. Um, and I, and I have older brothers, you know, my older brother has five kids and he was having, you know, kids really early, like before. And I was, you know, an uncle and I loved being an uncle, but yeah, I look back now and I, yeah, I had no real empathy or sympathy for what he was going through and, it, and you know, loads of judgment around how he looks after his kids and how he can never come out or how this and that. And then you have kids. So I, I, before having kids, you know, it's hard to give a damn quite frankly about childcare and you really don't appreciate uh, and then after you have kids, it's like the be all and end all. It's the, the the biggest pain point in your life, and all the other stresses and strains that come with being a, a parent, loss of flexibility and freedom and opportunity. You know, they all stem back. Actually, it's just so hard to get people to look after. So have your kids who are the most important thing in the world to you looked after. So um, and, and yeah, as you alluded to, right, childcare is a really broad. Um, so you've got um, everything from like you know regulated. Uh, early years childcare, which is, you know, nurseries and like early, early school years and even child minding, uh, which is like out of home regulated uh, childcare, uh, which is huge industry. And then what Bubble specifically tackles is, you know, ad hoc, flexible in-home childcare. And that's like parents booking babysitters and nannies to look after their own kids in their own home. And they all, um, they're very, diff there's many, there's some really fundamental differences between in-home childcare in the parents' home and out-of-home childcare in settings. Uh, but fundamentally, it's all about, you know, how do we get quality uh, childcare for parents to help them work and live uh, generally? And it's, a, it's just a huge industry. And that's actually one of the things that intrigued me about the space and actually annoyed me about the lack of options as a, as a parent struggling with childcare is it's just gigantic. You know, so in the UK, especially because, uh, you know, the UK is just it's an absolute mess, childcare, and just the expense of it is, you know, un almost unparalleled anywhere in the rest of the world. You know, parents spend 30% of their disposable income on childcare. And um, the fact that there were no good solutions in that space, yeah, that's what kind of really as well uh, fueled me to try and do something uh, in it. Yeah, no, totally. And, and I was going to ask you, like, what you thought the sort of the biggest problems are associated with childcare obviously cost is a huge one I've definitely said that one myself is that the biggest barrier right now for parents that access in the right kind of childcare or is it also about like accessibility lack of options um yeah trust it's, uh, it's both yeah yeah well I think the, the, the trust element is a big part of why you know there is not lots of amazing solutions out there it, it makes sense that you know when you think of digital disruption or innovation that childcare is, in a way, almost the last kind of sector uh, to be impacted. I mean, we've had lots of other sectors where they took time for adoption because of trust issues, you know, banking, finance, um, and, and other services, services marketplaces, right, all involve trust, but nothing to the level of you look after your children. So trust is definitely a big reason, and, and the need for such a high level of trust um, is a big reason why it's so, so hard to build businesses in this space and why it's so hard to solve what is such an obvious problem for so many people. Um, but that, you know, that on, on top of that, really, there's, yeah, there's affordability of it and there's accessibility to it. So you, it's very hard to get away from the fact that childcare is just really expensive for parents. And a critical point is the child carers, the people providing it, you know, they're underpaid. You know, we don't appreciate them enough. Um, and it's a bit of a strange phenomenon, like, because it's such an important thing, you know, who looks after your kids and you expect such incredible quality. But generally speaking, we don't appreciate the people enough and, and paying for it feels quite hard for a lot of parents. And it is quite hard. Um, so one is this kind of challenge. And that's why I think government intervention is needed. There is a market failure in childcare and private companies themselves are really going to struggle to like solve it entirely um, because for parents it's incredibly expensive and we want the carers to be paid properly and what they deserve but it's also accessibility so and that's what you know one of the things we really set out to solve is even if you have the money for it um, finding it especially at short notice and finding it flexibly which is an ever-increasing need the way the world's working at the moment 
um, it's just really difficult. They're just not very good solutions. You don't need full-time nursery, full-time childminding if you work evenings or shift work, you know, settings are closed. So actually the need for flexible childcare is not, you know, it's almost equally as important the access to it as the affordability of it. And like a couple of things to pick up there. I think one is like, uh, I guess with where you focus on like that, that more kind of um, short notice ad hoc, there the trust factor increases like is, is magnified i guess because it's not some like a necessarily like a yeah putting someone in a nursery and you, you like once you've selected that nursery you know that nursery and you start to build a relationship it, if it is at all then obviously the trust factor um is more difficult yeah. to, to prove to those people and i guess the second thing i want to touch on which i was going to ask about is like where you think some of these solutions need to come from because i agree you don't want to squeeze the carers because ultimately your kids are the most important things in your life. You don't want to you don't want to scrimp on the people that should be paid fairly for doing really hard work and look after your children. But then that means you need to get support from somewhere. And I guess the government is one, but there's a lot of pressure on the government right now. Do you do you see like a potential? I don't know if trend is the right word, but do you see potentially like employers starting to step more into this space? And actually, that could be a differentiator for for companies now. Is actually we can help you with your childcare. I know that is a thing already, but do you think that's something we'll see more of? Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. And we have a. We have a bubble to work product where we are um, working with employers who want to, you know, make a stand on this subject and who recognize that the families and the parents in their business need particularly not just support access, wise, but financial support. Um, so there's definitely an onus on employers to do more to support the, pe the people in their business with access and support in terms of finance, financial support um, for, for their people. But as I said, predominantly like government and, and look, government have um, some elements of childcare support for families. They have things called tax-free childcare um, and they have 15 and 33 hours. But what we speak to them a lot about and what we really want to see happen is um, making it easier for families to tap into that funding by new forms of childcare like Bubble because currently it's very, very difficult for families to access that. And as more and more families start turning to services like Bubble, it's, it seems crazy to us that um, they can't use government support um, when paying their childcare through us. And that's probably a whole other subject um, that we, I won't go too much into detail, the ins and outs of that. But also, like I think, yeah, in the UK, we don't have anywhere near the level of funding uh, and support that they do in other European cities. You know, I think... Um, countries like in Scandinavia and France, where actually the amount of money that parents can spend on their childcare is like capped at like a few hundred pounds a month. Um, and in England, you know, private nursery or, or in other countries, you know, nurseries for the child is three, uh, they're publicly funded, they're free. Uh, and in the UK, nursery is private, right? Until your kids go to school at three, at three years old, um, which is just crazy because it's basically saying, you know, it's thousands of pounds thousands of pounds a month um, to put your kids through that. And that's not the case in other countries. Similarly, like even things like in the school day, right? Starts at nine, th nine o'clock, finishes at 3.45. Doesn't, that just doesn't correlate with the working, um, you know, with the working world. I was just in Israel and when school finishes at 3.45 or they understand parents work till six, they have publicly funded after school clubs. So there's, lo there's loads of things. Um, that uh, that I think could be done and where we're behind in this country. But it's not just, as I said, there's also onus on private enterprises and startups like us to innovate. And I think that's what we're doing. Definitely. And um, probably a great tee up to actually chat about Bubble <laughs> and um, what you guys are doing. So would you be able to give an overview of, of what Bubble is and what you do? Sure. We, yeah, we're a marketplace and um, an on-demand uh, app for parents to connect discover, book, and pay for flexible childcare. So uh, our app is about, you know, we have over 200,000 families. We have over 100,000 carers now in the UK registered on our platform. And they use Bubble uh, to, yeah, book childcare on demand in a really um, safe, flexible, transparent way. So, and really our, our USP, I would say, is how we approach the issue of trust. So as we already touched on, right? Um, that is the fundamental thing in this space. You know, how can I, how can I trust someone that I'm booking via an app to come and look after the most precious things in the world to me? Um, and that's what, you know, our starting point was actually looking at uh, how parents 
found baby sisters and nannies. And again, conventional wisdom was it had to be, you know, a traditional agency who would find you like a Mary Poppins style character. But that is detached from reality. You know, that's not how parents find baby sisters and nannies. It's actually very simple. We go to our friends, we go to other parents we trust, and we want to know who they use. And if they tell us who they use, nine times out of 10, that person's good enough for us. So it's not shortcutting trust or ignoring trust. It's actually recognizing what is uh, the thing that, that gives parents that trust. And in childcare, more so than any other uh, space, I would say it's personal recommendation and social validation. So we built the app on top of a, and this is kind of our core technology, on top of a social graph that uses social data, various different data points to actually try and connect parents with the carers who already exist within their trusted social circle. It's, it's trying to take that very simple diet off world, off platform dynamic of personal recommendation uh, that all parents want and, and rely on every day and just make, just bring it to a parent's fingertips. So it's an end-to-end um, booking app for childcare, but it sits on top of a, of a social graph to really uh, build trust and, and digitize trust, we say, in a completely unique way. And um, to unpack that, trust element for a little, a little bit more um that, that all makes complete sense how do you display that in the app so like if i was a parent on there looking to book a sitter would it show me like my friends and family that have used that sitter or does it display it in a different way yeah um so first thing to say which sometimes a lot because when people have described us over the years you know naturally it's the uber the Amazon Prime, I don't know, the Tinder for babysitters. The Uber one really bothers me. I mean, I probably used it myself in the early days, right? Because it's, it's got some, there's some positives to that, you know, speed, flexibility, et cetera. And everyone just instantly understands what it means when you say that. But actually it does us a disservice. Um, and it's not a useful kind of terminology for bubble. Because actually when you're thinking, you know, booking someone to look after your kids, it's actually quite anxiety inducing. You know, this idea I'm going to push a button and someone's going to turn up at my door. And we've actually built the app in complete opposite way. So what parents really love about Bubble is the control it gives them. So typically what parents don't like about traditional agencies or backup emergency childcare where you ring a number and they send you a nanny, I don't want that. You know, I want to choose who is right for me and my kids. And every parent's idea of that and sensibilities around that is so different. So we built the app. Um, so, you know, how it works practically is you post a job. Uh, we then are alert, alerting carers in your area in real time and then we we basically collect you applicants really quickly and then as a parent you can see who's applied we give you really rich profiles on them including like video profile we tell you all the different checks they've been through uh, and what they haven't been through some have different credentials than others critically we show you uh, their one their reviews from other families and you can actually uh, interact with those families in the app but also the friends you have in common so we use um friends data from Facebook, we use uh, address book data, we use school and nursery data, we use workplace data, and um, we kind of mesh that together. So if you're looking at a sitter who's applied to your job, we'll tell you, you know, you're a second degree connection to this sitter because you know her, uh, you know, Craig, who works at your office, used her last week. And here, why don't you message Craig in the app to ask what you thought? So that's how we display it. And it's really like a critical distinction for us is making people understand that, yeah, it's not push a button and someone comes. It push, it's push a button and very quickly you can see who you can book, uh, but you have complete control. And that's actually a massive selling point of the app, that parents have that control. And, and we see it as our, you know, our mission to give them just a lot of transparency and a lot of information at their fingertips so that they can make informed choices because that's critical for us. Like that fundamental belief that parents um, are the best judge um, and want to be the judge of who's going to come over and look after their kids. Yeah, 100%. I, I, as a parent, I couldn't imagine doing it any other way. Um, and it's worth pointing out that outside of um, that, that's your big differentiator. And I can completely understand what, how that builds real trust in the users. Um, but you do have other safeguards in place. So can you just chat through what else you do from like a vetting perspective as well? Yeah. Uh, look, I'd say our vetting process now at Bubble that we've built in-house is more robust and more stringent than traditional, you know, offline childcare vetting that you might do for a typical agency. So um, currently, you know, we are, our approval rate for sitters who sign up to Bubble um, is about 25% actually end up going live on the platform. 
um, because we put them through quite a detailed onboarding process that we've built. So everyone gets identity checked, everyone gets online background checked, everyone goes through, we built a reference checking tool which collects reference information, pings referees, collects answers back and, and assesses them. Um, so there's like a baseline level of checks we do on everyone. Uh, then we have things on top of that where sitters can embellish their profiles, right? They can do, we allow them to uh, apply for and buy enhanced DBS checks through the platform. We verify those and we'll display that on their profiles. Uh, we uh, do um, interviews, our operations team and our customer success team will interview sitters if they want to get an extra level of um you know, another trust mark on their profile. Uh, we have, you know, the first of its kind on-demand public liability insurance. So when a clock starts on the app, uh, when a sit starts on the app and when it ends, the sitter is covered uh, for a million pound public liability insurance. That sit is insured for like accidental uh, injury and property damage, which we, again, it was quite a novel thing we did. Uh, and then on top of that, you have the social validation tool. So and that's something we built over time. You know, when we launched Bubble, we were just doing an identity check and we had the reviews and we had the social connections. And then we're constantly adding new features. Just lost, uh, just recently, we, we added something called Safety Bubble, um, which is kind of akin to what you get in an Uber when you're riding in an Uber and they have this, I think, fantastic safety center. So for example, both parents and carers have this new uh, dynamic safety center whilst they're on a sit. So for carers, it allows them to automatically ping a trusted contact the details of that sit. So I'm going here at this time um, to sit uh, for this family. Um, it also gives like um, first aid. Uh, we've, 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 um, we've built this uh, really cool first aid and safeguarding video content live in the safety feature and as well as other reporting tools. So we're constantly um, adding uh, features to the safety suite. And sometimes this is what's frustrating, you know, when you run an app like Bubble is people hear the word app uh, and they think you're cutting corners and they think, well, it can't be safer than how you do it today. And actually the opposite is true. Right. And the thing people need to realize is the most common way people find childcare is on Facebook groups or at the school gates or text messaging a friend through a friend. There's no checks, there's nothing, there's no tracking. Uh, so we're completely taking safety in this space to a, to a completely new level, but sometimes that's not always appreciated because it's quite an easy stick or a critic to bash you with um, where you're an app. So how can that be safe? But as I said, you know, it's if you look under the hood, um, the opposite's true. So in terms of building a marketplace is incredibly difficult. And we've already talked a few times about the trust element, which makes it doubly hard when you're asking users to trust you with their children. And you said it obviously the early days was focused on that social proof element being the big differentiator. But in terms of the logistics of building out a marketplace in the early days, like where did you start? Like, did you start on a very specific ge geography or community and, and like build it out from there? Yeah, we, well, one thing, even though I lived in London like my whole life, one thing I realized quite quickly when we tried to build a bubble was like London's huge and there's like cities within a city because you think, right, I'm going to kind of focus, I want to take over London. Um, and you realize, yeah, it's a, it's a big bloody place. And, um, right. We tried to be yeah, specific. I wouldn't, we never went like postcode by postcode, which I know I'll read, I'll hear a lot of founders talk about, and you know, maybe that was an error we made. I don't know, but we, we tried to, yeah, we focused on like certain pocket of Southwest London, certain pocket of North London. Um, and yeah, we, we almost arbitrarily like picked a number of carers that we want live ready to go when we were ready for launch. Um, and, and, and we, yeah, we went quite concentrated. We didn't have lots of money, um, to spend, but we did all the kind of classic things you do flyering in the park and train stations and, uh, Facebook and, um, you know, hiring a few ambassadors to hit high streets for us and things like that. Um, but I'd, yeah, I'd say definitely if you're launching in a new space, it's got to be some, some level of concentration, um, particularly in the supply base. But it's a, you know, it's a classic challenge. It's really, really hard to solve because you onboard suppliers, carers in our case, and when they're sitting idle for a few weeks, you know, keeping them engaged and not losing them is really hard. So it's a really hard balance to strike of like, how many people do we need? How much in advance, you know, do you, do you want to bring them on? And I don't think it's a wholly solvable problem. I think you're constantly flipping, you know, and just having to adjust quickly move to kind of fill, fill supply or fill demand in a new area, there's no perfect way, um, to kind of 
yeah, get, you're never going to get that balance perfect, really. If you're listening and thinking, I'd love to work for a company like this, then you need to go to www.jobsforgood.io where they have the best jobs in four good companies. From climate change to social impact to green transport, you'll be able to find the perfect job for you. Trust me. Check it out, www.jobsforgood.io. Now back to the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And like fast forward to where you are now, six years ahead, and you mentioned kind of the scale you've reached now in terms of like sitters on the platform. Has, has the biggest lever been um, like network effect? And just as you start to get more and more people on the platform, they recommend more people. Has that been the biggest growth channel for you? Or has it been more like starting to invest in like paid activities or? Yeah, we've never done much paid um, and certainly not in a concerted way. Um, we've grown off of like organic word of mouth. Um, and partly that's been by design, partly that's been because we haven't uh, ever had too much funding to throw at it, even if we wanted to. Um, so yeah. And in our case, network effects are so important because our product, you know, genuinely does get better for a user. You know, the, 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 the classic network effect is like products get better for a user, the more people they know are on it. Um, and in bubble, that's absolutely the case because if you're a parent, um, the product gets infinitely better for you and exponentially better for you. The more parents you know are using it because then that whole trust system kicks in because you're looking at sitters all of a sudden uh, who are connected to you or have had reviews for your friends. And it actually works both ways because as a carer, um, once you start sitting for a few parents in an area, you know, when their parents join that, you become much more bookable. So, you know, the di- bubble is a very like review driven marketplace. So those early, if you're a carer who gets on early, in a new area, you know, you can do, and we've got carers who have been on the platform for five, six years, you know, they were the early ones. They were the first ones I met in the coffee shops, you know, before we, before we were launched, still, we're still, we still chat on WhatsApp sometimes, you know, cause that's how I ran it in the early days. Um, and they, it, it just gets exponentially better for them, the more people are on it. So definitely network effects and just, again, especially in the childcare space, as I alluded to earlier, word of mouth, um, and recommendation is just fundamental to it. So yeah, we've really benefited from that. And yeah, we absolutely hope to kind of, you know, how do we get to a new level? It's, it's got to be through paid because, you know, organic will only take you so far. And it's really, I feel a fantastic string to your bow and an amazing um, attribute of the business. But at the same time, also an amazing attribute of the business is showing that you know uh, how to deal with um, paid marketing as well and scaling through that. And that's, that's a challenge um, that we we had to conquer see. Cool. So, so next, can we talk a little bit about pricing and revenue model? Like who sets the prices? Is that bubble? Is that the sitters and the nannies? And, and secondly, like how do bubble make money? Yeah. So it's pure marketplace in the sense that the sitters on the app will have complete control and flexibility to set their price. So we have some really, they have a basic tool where they can just set their hourly rate, but then we also recently launched dynamic pricing for them. So if they get jobs, job requests in that might be, you know, a bit more difficult than the standard job. So it could be something super short notice. It could be some, a parent with five children. Um, it could be a particularly hard sit and you as a sister think, you know what, I'm 12 pound an hour, but actually I can't really do this job or it doesn't really suit me, but I do it for 15 pounds an hour. We allow them to kind of apply dynamically, uh, based on the job that comes in. So again, big selling point of the platform for carers is that real flexibility around what they earn. And again, on the parent side as well, you know, a 20 year nurse, a great experienced nurse, at great Ormond street, who's on bubble, but extra work, you know, they demand and could rightly command a higher price than maybe, a you know, a university student who lives five doors down. Um, so it works both ways in that regard. Um, we make our money a few different ways. We have a, we have a bubble plus subscription platform, uh, plan. Uh, so that's how most parents use the service. So they subscribe to, to a subscription plan. It means they get some additional features, but from a pricing perspective, it means that they get unlimited bookings on the platform and we never charge them a booking fee on top. Uh, for those that, um, don't take the subscription plan, it's like a, it's a pay as you go booking fee of five ninety nine on every sit. Uh, we also take platform fees from, from the transaction as well. So, you know, if there's a 50 pound sit. We take a, we take what we call a platform fee against that. 
and that scales from 10% to 3.5%. Um, and again, dep it depends basically on how we look at how many times that family and that sitter have sat together. Um, and when it's the first sit, the platform fee is higher. When it's future sits, um, it comes down. And that's basically around the idea that, you know, Bubble has two elements, I would say, to our value proposition. One is we help a parent and a carer find each other for the first time. But then it's almost like beyond that, it's like a SaaS benefit to it. So yes, we obviously want people to continuously keep using the platform and they benefit from insurance, secure payment, customer support, all of that. But it's a lower charge on that because we appreciate, you know, that first time finding each other is, is a higher fee, but we want you to carry on using it forever, really. So the price of that scales down. So um, that's our core revenue. It's platform fees, it's booking fees, and it's subscription fees. Um, and we also, you know, we have other elements to our business now. We, we have our B2B business where we're selling direct companies who pay us uh, license fees to give bubble to their staff. Uh, and we actually have a, a nanny um, recruitment service now, a nanny eight, more, like, more akin to a, a, a traditional nanny agency service where we help parents find a permanent uh, employed nannies. Um, and we have a, a white glove service for them as well. Got it. It all makes sense. And, and um, with the, the bubble for work, talk about that for a second. When did you launch that? And do you see that as like a big growth area for you? Is that something you're investing quite heavily or is that? Yeah, look, I think um, we launched it during COVID because uh, there was obviously a rush for companies to think about how they can better support their staff. And the business case for it is so strong. You know, it's there's so much written and so much data out there about how lack of childcare and general stress on working parents is a massive driver of employee churn and loss of productivity. I think that's something that opened a lot of people's eyes, you know, when people were working from home, just, tr you know, watching parents trying to work while their kids were around, it's impossible, right? So, you know, we believe really strongly that, you know, companies win if they support their staff and then they invest in ensuring that their parents who are working for them are not worried about childcare. So we've won um, a bunch of clients already, uh, but like with any B2B sales, it's really long. You know, we are, our nature is a B2C consumer marketplace app. Um, so B2B is very different for us and we're still learning about sales cycle. We're still mid probably our first sales cycle, but yeah, from an ideological perspective, when you're speaking to businesses, it's, it's a very easy conversation to have, but as anyone who's tried to do B2B sales will tell you before, that's, you know, just the start really uh, beyond that. There's just a lot of work that goes into to winning those deals. So yeah, we really do believe in it because we're passionate about, uh, and Sarah, our chief commercial officer runs that part of the business. Uh, is just incredibly passionate about supporting working parents, especially, uh, mothers, returning mothers, or there's so much written about the contribution of the childcare struggle to the gender pay gap. Um, and just generally. Uh, women struggling to kind of come back to work and excel in their careers in the same way men do, because, you know, the reality is uh, wrongly, but it's the reality that the childcare burden always falls much more predominantly on mums. And that has a huge impact on their ability to thrive at work. So we as a business just feel incredibly um, passionate about being a solution there. So it's early days that part of the business for us, but yeah, we, we are investing in it and we're seeing good results so far. Uh, but B2B sales, it's, it's hard work. Can imagine. Um, and, you know, I, I was going to ask, it's like, what's what's in the, the roadmap? Like, what's the future of Bubble look like? Like we've talked about, obviously, starting to fest, like move away from pure organic growth to like paid, talking about Bubble for work. Are you starting to look expands like new geographies? What, what, what's the big things in the roadmap for the next few years? Yeah, look, we are we are looking at expanding into new geographies. Um, it's, it's tough, right? Anyone, I think, in, in my position probably faces a similar dilemma at some point, you know, we, on one hand, the UK is just a gigantic market and we're still really scratching the surface uh, when it comes to penetration there. So you kind of have to always weigh up, you know, what do I do here? Do I kind of really uh, stay focused until I've absolutely cracked something? But on the same time, you know, we see and we hear from customers in the US and elsewhere who have used Bubble and moved back, you know, begging us, you know, on a weekly basis, we're getting emails like telling us to move to come across. So. As is always the case, right? It, you you face this prioritization dilemma, but I think we're at a place now where yeah, we can start more seriously to look at international expansion. So that's um, that's on our horizon. Um, but at the same time, it's also you know we have a goal 
to become a you know destination almost services marketplace for busy families. So, you know, obviously childcare is such a big issue. And even within childcare, as we alluded to, there are there are different verticals within childcare. So we're building out our product to cater to more of those verticals, but we're also going to build our product out to help busy families in other ways. So we have a beta product live at the moment called Helper, which is if you are um if you're in need of something else other than a babysitter or a nanny, it, you know, we've, we've got requests going up around, um, it's kind of, we've left it very open at the moment, which helps us learn what customers really want, but you can, we have people booking, um, they might, have, um, come back from hospital and they need someone to come in and cook, or they need someone, they want someone to play a game of chess with an elderly relative, or they've got a party and they need help organizing or clearing up afterwards. Uh, we've had some, uh, there's a lot of pet care stuff that's going on with families. So it's really interesting. And what's, what's nice about it is our care base, our supplier base is so vast. It's very wide. It's very deep as well, as in it's very varied. So we're thinking, how do we use the technology we build, the brand we're building, uh, the trust we're building? You know, if we can get if families trust and love bubble for looking after their kids, I think it's, a, it's not a massive leap to think that they would use it for other trust-based and other services as well. So, you know, for us, there's a B2B opportunity, there's the international opportunity, there's services in developing other services. Uh, there's a lot of opportunities, which is exciting, but we've got to pick them off in, in the right order. 100%. Exciting, mate. Um, and then to talk, talk to you a little bit about your personal journey as a founder. Um, yeah, you worked in a startup previously. This is your first startup as a founder. Um, yeah, what have been some of your biggest or what has been the biggest learn so far yeah sure, there's a lot, lot i often say i have a much more I, we always had a great relationship it wasn't like i didn't have respect to him beforehand but i have a m- much deeper level of respect to the founders of the previous startup i worked at than i did at the time uh, now having founded a business myself and you know rightly because you know founders make mistakes and the people that work for them are questioning and critiquing and thinking how they could do things better and you want people like that in the business right but you know looking back a bit like a bit like before i had kids and i would judge my brother on his parenting abilities right you judge founders on their their abilities and then when you found found a business yourself you just realize it's just the level of um stress and worry and skill required and conflicting interests which and how hard decisions you need to make which will piss people off and um is is just something you don't appreciate until you're in it really uh, and just the level of work and yeah look i don't think i was like super naive going into it but i think one of the dangers people have when they think about doing a startup is they've probably read too much tech crunch and you know, LinkedIn puff pieces and status updates. And you think everything is just, you don't think everything's rosy, but again, you don't appreciate that 99% is just graft and hard work and a lot of failure. And hopefully you're one of the one out of a hundred who will, who will come out the other side. And, um, so, you know, you learn that, uh, you learn that the hard way. Um, and yeah, difficult. I, I, I feel like really strongly about um, and, and, you know, naturally people ask me sometimes if they think of starting businesses and, uh, and which is great. And I always encourage it, obviously, but I also like don't sugarcoat it. And I make sure people like really think through, um, their motivations for doing it. Cause sometimes people just say, I want, I want to do a startup. You're like, why? You know, like, they don't really have a good answer for you. So I want to do a startup. Cause they, as I said, they think it's like, just, I don't know, a lot of fun and glory. And of course that that's in there as well. But you know, I talk to people about that. It's like, well, what's, what? If you've got an idea you're passionate about, um, obviously, like, absolutely go for it. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a lot of it's a lot of pain. Uh, it's a lot of pain, and it's very very lonely. Um, and I don't think enough is actually spoken about that. Yeah, and, and I, again, a question I ask every guest, um, not necessarily specific about loneliness, but like when you are a founder, whether you're Maybe I guess when you have a co-founder team, it can be a bit more different. There's a bit more support there, and, and you have like peers around you you can share stuff with. But as a as a sole founder, like how do you manage your mental health? Like when it is really tough, it's absolute grind. Like what what do you have in place, or what do you do to help you get through those moments? Yeah, well, life. I'm lucky. I have you know people on my board and really supportive uh, investors. Um, 
And there's people I, I speak to, you know, really candidly and openly who give me good advice and feedback. Um, I'm very lucky. My wife's incredibly supportive. Um, and I think that's been massively important because there's def- so many down moments and there's so many difficult times. If, if you're not getting that level of support, probably times maybe you wouldn't have carried on. So that's a, that's a massive factor. Um, and yeah, I, I it's funny enough because I speak to uh, other founders about this sometimes. And I think as a founder, you put yourself under such pressure um, to, to deliver. And actually, you don't sometimes realize that you, the business at some point gets to a point where actually you are naturally like fundamental to the business. So um, how you're feeling and whether you're able to cope and whether you're able to uh, operate properly, it's in everyone's interests that you're at a high level. So, and, and sometimes I've definitely found myself thinking this way and speaking to other founders, you know, you worry, you kind of detach the two of them. You're like, well, this is my happiness and this is kind of how I'm feeling about everything. And then this is like the business, how the business is doing and what the business needs. And you think sometimes I'm going to put myself through hell um, because I feel bad. I feel bad on my investors. I feel bad on staff. I feel bad if I need to go do something, it's not right to do it. But I think, and they're really good investors and the sport of shadows, they, they realize that and they're constantly saying to me like, nah, your emotional happiness your mentality is fundamental to the success of the business. So no one, no one benefits from a founder like, uh, no one who's put money into the company or works for the company benefits from a founder like, yeah, um, feeling like crushed by the pressure. But I think sometimes it's hard to, you don't really realize that. And it's always easier giving, it's always e- easier giving other people advice. I'm constantly, you know, giving founders, you know, adv- this kind of advice that when people give to me, it's like, yeah, yeah. But, um, but yeah, it's very, very important, but it's easier said than done because there's no getting away from it. It's just really difficult and a, and a, and a grind and you need to be yeah, really resilient, um, really resilient to, to kind of get through it. hundred percent. And, um, yeah, you're you know, six years in, achieved a hell of a lot already and there's loads more that you've got planned. When you look back, what, what's been, what's been like the proudest moment so far? Um, I, I still look back to like the really early days and get, you know, I remember when I got, I still remember our first booking that was ever made. I still, I can still remember the moment. I still remember the lady's name. Um, and I remember days where you check your phone and like three bookings were made and that, that still like makes me very proud. I was saying to the team actually this week that actually the thing that still makes me like gives me the biggest boost is genuinely like when I turn on, I see a, a good trust pilot, you know, come through from a happy customer. Um, and the thing that still kicks me in the gut the most is the opposite. You know, thankfully they're very rare, but you know, it's uh, so, so customer happiness and hearing stories about, uh, the customers you help and how much they rely on your service and love your service. And I think we're very lucky that because what we do is so fundamental to people's lives, you know, it really, really matters. And they really love, we don't get everything right. We're not perfect, but generally speaking, you know, the people using us, they, they adore the service and it means a lot to them. And that's got to be what you're, what you're most proud of. And we're lucky we, we operate a service and we do something which really helps people. And I think everyone working in the business, like that's why they're here. Because again, I don't sugarcoat when we're speaking to new hires or whether it's the engineering team or the customer success teams, like there are easier places to work because Take it takes, you know, working in customer success, you know, there's loads of customer success roles, uh, in startup land, uh, in London. Right. Um, but if you're working with like an e-com company and you know, what's, what's the worst that could happen, right? Someone's shoes don't arrive. Um, you know, at bubble, we have a big responsibility, you know, and that adds stress and that adds pressure, but it adds so much job satisfaction. Same with our, like our engineers, right? Well, the reason they love a uh, big reason, one of the reasons they love working on the product is they see the real world impact it has on consumers using it. And that's what definitely um, makes everyone proud to work here. And we, we try and champion that. You know, we have a, a bubble success a success channel on Slack where just during the day, you know, people are just dropping in these things. that come, And thankfully it happens a lot of times during the day, like little comments that come in from customers, which really, yeah, just highlight the impact of what we're doing. And that's what we're most proud of, definitely. Nice. Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah, farm section podcast, I was about like, how you grow a tech for good business. And, and like you said, you know, you're building something that truly has an impact on people's lives. Um, 
in whether it's in the early days or it's something you want to start to look at more now, but like as the business is growing, what are you doubling down on or making sure that it really is in place? So as you get bigger and more people come in, you scale that you do stay true to that, um, to that like central purpose, those core values. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Look, I think we're trying to do a lot of work at the moment around, around our, our core values um, because that's critical to us. Yeah, as we scale to more people, and I think we've definitely made mistakes, you know, in terms of hiring, I've made lots of mistakes. Um, and maybe it's been because we haven't had at times like a really clear, uh, crystal clear, like um, idea of core values that we need of people that work here. And I think we, we got to a place more recently where we, we really have that. And I think we're in such a better place in terms of how we hire and stay in the team at the moment. Um, so I think having that set of values is, is really important and having them really well understood is really important. And also just consistently like championing the customer, like throughout the business um, and just keeping it front of mind. And that's hard because, you know, as you scale, as you become hopefully like a lot more busier, like, it happens to so many companies, right? They, their customer levels just just drop. Uh, and as consumer, I've been exposed to that, right? You see it. And you and now on the inside, you understand why. Um, so we're constantly yeah, championing the customer and making sure, you know, every time we do an update, um, team update, you know, it's the customer is, is front and center of what we do. I think in our case specifically, we have a real commitment to trust and security. So, you know, we challenge ourselves like every quarter no matter what else is going on, we've released something that we have to release something that is uh, safety enhancing. So even there are times where you're trying to hit numbers and you're trying to fuel growth um, and you have a really crowded roadmap and not enough resource, like we have a commitment and I have a commitment to our board and I report on this, like doesn't matter what else is going on, um, we're doing something to improve safety on the platform um, every quarter. So we, so we do that as well as a way to kind of keep us, um, yeah, really tied down to and consistent and uh, committed uh, to that core core goal. And we, you know, we want to build and we have to build, but we also want to build the safest platform in the world. Not something that's safe enough, but actually something that brings safety to a whole new standard in this space. So yeah, we keep that front of center, front and center at all times. Yeah, makes complete sense. And when it comes to hiring, um, you, you talked earlier about the importance of like mission alignment and, and just what that means when you bring those kinds of people into the team. What else do you generally look for? Like you talked about hiring across like customer success, engineering product. Um, are there any particular like skills, characteristics, traits that you look for generally in people that you bring into the business? Um, yeah, I mean, a couple that immediately come to mind is like, and maybe it's an obvious one to say, like just a, a baseline level of like human decency um, that we look for and we and we test for in everyone that we hire. Um, so that's first and foremost. And I think people generally want to work, not, 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 not everyone's going to be the same. We have a really diverse team, but, um, and we're, we're in the business of care, right? So we, as people and as a company have to be caring at our core. Um, and that's something we, we look for. Uh, the other is like, um, a real, uh, natural will to do well, you know, people who've shown that they are, they want to achieve uh, and they're driven to achieve and they could have, they could display that in lots of different ways, you know, in their personal lives or in their school lives or, or in extracurricular, they've done things or they've shown a willingness to do things that, um, because they're, they're driven to do well, because, you know, in this, in this, especially in this day and age, right. And there's so much about hybrid working, remote working, flexibility, um, which is a whole minefield and probably a whole nother podcast, like all together, right? but fundamentally, if you have people, you have a team of people who are naturally self motivated to achieve and they're ambitious a lot of those other problems and considerations they go away because you can gut you know you've got a team of people who want to do well and you don't need to you know worry about some of the things that you have to otherwise so we really try and drill drill down on that and it doesn't it's not you know you're speaking to people they might be really early in their career right so they haven't had time to do crazy wonderful things that um Obviously, if they have, fantastic, but it's small things that actually show the difference between someone who has an urge to make a difference and do something and someone who doesn't. So, so we really look to that because fundamentally, yeah, we can, we can, and it's so much easier said than done. But if you have a team of people who are just natural doers, um, 
it's, it's incredible. It's a world of difference. And I say to people as well, like, you know, there's no getting away from it. We have no right to exist. We have no right to grow and become what we want to become. Like it's going to be really hard work and we have to be amazing at our, at our job. Um, and if again, so, so much easier said than done, but if you can find the right people and you can stick to your principles and you build a team of only those types of characters, um, that's probably the most important thing you can do, uh, in terms of whether you're going to be successful or not. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Really good advice and good points. Um, and I'm sure your bubbles, well, obviously big plans, so you're going to continue growing. So, um, if anyone listening wants to follow the bubble journey or interested in working for you, like what's, where's the best place for them to find bubble or follow the journey or apply? We've got a lovely, uh, careers page now. Um, which we recently launched, which I think, which hopefully gives a lot of, uh, so joinbubble.com and, um, I think it's joinbubble.com forward slash careers, but there's a link to it on the footer, uh, where you get a real insight into the team at bubble. Uh, and there's a separate section around, um, the engineering team, especially, you know, how we approach engineering, who the the guys on the team are, um, but also generally about the whole business, our values, what it's like working at bubble, um, dive into some of the individuals that work here. So I'd really encourage everyone to take a look, uh, at that. And we, yeah, we're, we're specifically hiring for roles in engineering and, um, customer success at the moment, but fundamentally we're, we're also just interested in hearing from just great people. Um, as I touched on earlier, there's a lot of opportunity for us. Um, and there's a lot of new things we're going to be doing in the future. So a lot of things will be opening up and a lot of uh, different roles will be opening up soon. So yeah, always interested to hear from great people. Awesome. Well, thanks for chatting with me today. It's been like really insightful and um, I just look forward to when you, you come out to kind of Bracknell Berkshire way so I can start using Bubble. Yeah, no, looking forward to it too. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode and leave us a review. We're just getting started out, so it would mean a lot to us. This episode was brought to you by Craig Turner, produced by Jabril al and sponsored by Jobs for Good. Until next time.